Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have Malcolm and Simone Collins with us. Now, from a young age, Malcolm was obsessed with the human mental landscape. Why do we think what we think? Why do we believe what we believe? How can we do those things better? Malcolm spent his childhood developing systematic models to predict human behavior and flesh them out at his early jobs in psychiatry and neuroscience at UT Southwestern and the Smithsonian. Eventually, Malcolm decided he wanted to implement his findings on a macro scale, so he decided to enter the world of business and get an MBA at Stanford. While getting his MBA, he met his wife, co-founder, and co-author of everything he has done since. Simone Collins decided to leverage Malcolm's model for how humans process information to remake herself into a better person, and within months, she was promoted all the way from a social media manager position to her company's director of marketing, managing 20,000 freelancers. Both went on to found a startup together, and while Simone dabbled in VC while getting a master's degree at Cambridge in the UK, Malcolm worked in VC in South Korea. By day, the couple now manages TravelMax, a multinational collection of travel businesses that help people and business spend less money and time on travel. By night, they work on the Pragmatist Foundation, a nonprofit they created to help live more intentional, productive lives. One of the first products of the foundation is the Pragmatist Guide to Life, a best-selling guide to developing our own answers to life's biggest questions, which can be found on Amazon for less than a dollar. So welcome, Simone and Malcolm Collins. How are you? Spectacular. How fantastic it is to be talking to you today. (laughs) Well, I'm super excited myself. And we are so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? You bet. Awesome. So can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? My gosh, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can start with mine. I mean, I used to be a neuroscientist, uh, you know, working at the Smithsonian that was publishing papers and everything like that. Did uh, research specifically on schizophrenia and on cults and brain-computer interface. And I got to a point in my research where I realized that I had developed sort of a theory about how humans interact and how they interact with the world. It's a pretty holistic theory, and I wanted to do more research on it. I wanted to collect more data on it to test it and perfect it. And I just wasn't able to do that within an academic context, or at least not at the scale I wanted to do it at. So I decided to move into a business context. And it also gave me a real world environment to test theories that I had. 
And that's what brought me into leadership environments is as I began testing the ideas I had about the way people interact, they ended up correct. And this knowledge allowed me to quickly move up within a business world to the point that we're at now. Always a high achiever. And that meant that I was always trying to move up and do more. And I think when you do that, the path of leadership is more or less inevitable. So I just got your book in the mail and I read a little bit about how you guys met. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Oh gosh. I had turned 24 years old and having, like I said, been a sort of high achiever, always focused on grades and getting work done. I'd never dated before. So I realized that at that point, since my life was already completely sorted out otherwise, I then needed to fall in love and have my heart broken so that I could continue living alone, which I loved doing, but at least tell the world that it was underwhelming. I had tried it, obviously. It's just so common and I'm above it. And so I had this really organized campaign where I dated people on a sort of industrial scale, rated them. I had this scoring system for whether someone was worth a second date. I gamified the process of dating by competing with other people in my office for points for like, oh, first base with this person, 10 hour date with this person, points. So it encouraged me to get out there because, you know, to me, humans are disgusting and terrifying. And of course, dating, therefore, is not easy. And then on my campaign, I met Malcolm and everything changed when I met him because he was so different from every other person I'd gone on a first date with. He told me his life story fairly succinctly, why he believed what he believed, what he wanted to achieve with his life, and how he was going to achieve it. Even to the detail of, oh, he told me, I'm looking to find a wife. I'm not really looking to date. And I expect to find her this fall at Stanford, but it was a large... <laughs> yeah, that's uh, on the first date. First date. Oh, yeah. Now, everything laid out, including his plans with dating, in a way that sort of <laughs> indicated to me like, wow, I mean, most of the guys I went on a date with couldn't even tell me they wanted to have sex with me, which was obviously what they wanted. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just like, I'm like, no, but here's the thing. Doesn't that make a lot of girls end the date with you right then and there? And I was like, yes, it does. And that's a positive thing. Somebody <laughs> isn't a negative thing if there's somebody who won't get along with you in the long term. And you sift through things quickly. Yeah. Yes. That makes getting sense. Getting to know as fast as possible is way more important than getting to a second date. Yeah. I, I wish I knew this when I was a lot younger. <laughs> it, it helps. I mean, Malcolm had his system where he sort of made his own candidates filter themselves out. And I had my point system where I filtered out my candidates and it really worked. But after meeting Malcolm and seeing his different way of looking at the world and looking at life, a, a very, we might say, pragmatic way, he sort of taught me how to think for myself as well and decide, you know, choose for myself who I wanted to be. And that changed everything. That's so interesting. And you mentioned pragmatic. And now your book is The Pragmatist Guide to Life. Can you tell us a bit about what drew you to write this book? What I would say is after I started dating Malcolm, so really on our first date when he told me who he was, and he was definitely my type and I thought he was really attractive, but the biggest emotion I came away with was I wanted to be him. I wanted to be someone who knew who they were, knew what they believed in, and knew what they wanted from life in the world. And so Malcolm kind of guided me through that process over the first summer that we dated. And he taught me how to decide for myself what I think had inherent value, what I wanted to maximize with my life, who I needed to be as a person to maximize that, and how I needed the public to see me. And it was amazing. I mean, when I actually thought for myself for the first time what I valued and what I cared about and who I wanted to be, it was totally different from who I was before. And my outfit completely changed, the way I spoke completely changed. 
And suddenly I got a promotion at work. At first I was the social media manager of the company I worked at, which is, you know, glorified human resources. And um, within a couple of months, I was promoted to director of marketing. It was one of the senior positions of the company. Managing 20,000 people. Yeah, and I was invited to speak at South by Southwest. Like suddenly my life just started changing. And people who knew me before and didn't see the transformation didn't believe me when I told them what I'd done. Because you had certainty in who you were and your place in the world and what you wanted to achieve. And the reason we originally wrote this to your question Mm-hmm. was for our kids originally. Yeah, because we saw how it worked for me. And we and saw it was a process that's pretty simple. So we thought our kids And then in a larger this. context, we founded a nonprofit around this. I mean, we sell the book for as little as we can. Only 99 cents in any profit we make from it goes to the nonprofit because with the nonprofit, I mean, eventually we want to start doing stuff in schools, is we think that if you look at the problems that we're having as a country right now, if you look at the problems that are endemic in our society right now, It's that people are not taught to think for themselves. They're taught how to join a tribe and argue the position of a tribe. And we're beginning to teach truth as if it's a team sport. And what we need to do is teach people how to change their minds, teach people how to engage with ideas they find offensive, and teach people how to really think from their opponent's perspective, and not from a perspective of using that to defeat their opponents, but from the perspective of my opponents may be correct, and there may be aspects of my view of the world that could be more perfect, and I can use that to update the way I live and the tools I am using to succeed and lead. So it became a personal experiment and evolved into a guide for our children, turned into a book, and a nonprofit and foundation. And a nonprofit foundation. It's pretty crazy. Best selling book for six months at this point. Yeah, who knew? So, as I was reading a little bit about it, I connected with it so much because it's coaching, is what it is. You're coaching people, and you're absolutely right. I've been in education for years, and we just started learning about coaching and asking people questions so that we can teach them to think. And so it certainly speaks to my heart. Now, you mentioned you wrote this for your kids or your future kids. Very pragmatically, (laughs) what we did is this was the year of the harvest, as we call it. Yes. Uh Uh, We've been focused on harvesting as many embryos as we can, genetically testing them and storing them while we're still young and genetically healthy. We're up to 19 at this point, healthy tested ones. We're getting close to our ideal number. And from there, we're going to start producing them in an industrial fashion, one after another, as soon as her body is safe again. And then once her body has been exhausted, we'll use surrogates. Um, And that's one of the reasons why we live in Lima, Peru, because it will be much cheaper to raise a large number of them here. And that's why we have the house out here. Yeah, we're pretty serious about this. (laughs) Wow, this is very scientific, isn't it? You know what? I don't see heartless at all. <laughs> and it's funny because your book is just very heady. And I like that because I like to think and I like to reason through things. So that's what attracted me to this. And I think we do need to do a lot more of that. So I'm learning so much already. <laughs> okay. So the second question, how would you describe your leadership style? We would say that leadership is about taking initiative. That's the only thing that makes somebody a leader. If you take initiative and take on the work, start a project, you are suddenly the leader and everyone else who's not taking initiative and who's not really willing to put themselves out there is not. That's the only thing. And Malcolm, did you want to chime in there? 
No, I, I don't think there's anything else to it. I mean, our leadership style is very much, if we have one thing that I think differentiates us from the previous owners. So, I mean, we have quite a large sort of business empire that we run. You know, our company does over $100 million a year in sales. And well, our combined companies. We acquired it from like- Well, well some of them, but we have other ones that we founded ourselves. Yes. But we run a large number of companies. And if there's one thing that I think a lot of people are not familiar with when we take on leadership positions, and it's just shocking to us because we assume that everyone will sort of talk this at a young age, it's the concept of if there is something wrong and you do not fix it, you are equally at fault as the person who caused it. If there is milk spilled on the ground and I find out that you just stepped over it and left it there, and you say, well, I didn't cause it, so I don't have to deal with it. No, you would receive, at least under our leadership, the exact same punishment as the person who spilled it. Because at the end of the day, we need to work on solving our problems collectively, and we can't just ignore them or think that a solution to a problem is either I clean this up or I find an effective way to blame it on someone else. Oh, that can't be an alternative to fixing the problem. And that seems to be everyone's default these days. Yeah. Yes, I absolutely see how we need to learn to take responsibility and teach how to take responsibility, what that looks like. So I'm with you. And that is leadership, taking responsibility, not only for your actions, but also what you said, correcting things when you see something's not going right, or at least moving in that direction. So thank you so much for that. Now, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Oh gosh, what was the one I had thrown? Um, it was, no, leadership's just a choice. You know, you choose to be a leader or you don't choose to be a leader. And that's just sort of my own quote. Like I would say, there's one short thing I would say about leadership, leadership's a choice. This is a quote by Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. leadership is a choice. Malcolm, you, either choose, you either choose to take leadership within a position or you don't. And it doesn't mean that you always should take leadership. I mean, sometimes it's better that other people take leadership within a particular role. And if two people are trying to be a leader at the same time, that can cause conflict. I mean, it, at the end of the day, humans are a social species, which means we're hierarchical, which means that if you have a group without anybody who's taking on the top level of the hierarchy, that can be a problem. But if you have a group where multiple people are fighting for the same position within the hierarchy, that can also be a problem. But Simone, you had a more pithy quote by Winston Churchill. So I we'll love just use that. Winston Churchill. I love his statement about success being about going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And I think the greatest leaders, if people think that they're great leaders because they succeed and because they're charismatic. But in the end, they're the people who haven't given up. But hold on, I just want to be more pragmatic about this. Humans are a social species, and like all social species, mm -hmm. we have a social hierarchy. We have a dominance hierarchy within any small group, okay? Um, and when I say small group, I mean the groups that humans like reasonably function within, which are groups of about, you know, 20, under 20 people, right? And when we enter a group like this, if we think we have a shot at a leadership position or if it's something we desire, then we'll fight for it. But when I say leadership, I just mean that it's anonymous with a high level of position within that individual hierarchy. And I understand why we glorify these higher level positions in the hierarchy, because certainly the person higher in the hierarchy often has more influence, but not necessarily. But I think glorifying this position with this concept of leadership or you know, saying that somebody can be a leader without having this high level of positions in the hierarchy. It's just that we've grown up in a society where we want to see ourselves and we want to tell ourselves a story where we have these high positions within these hierarchies, even if we don't. And that's where this broader definition of leadership has come from. But that might be a little too meta. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm, like I'm trying to follow 
what you're saying and you're absolutely on point and very pragmatic i must say what i do want to ask is to make sure you speak into the mic oh my goodness my wife has put on this ridiculous contraption and no your viewers need to hear this as well she She decided we need to split a headset because it causes less feedback and so i certainly hope they're enjoying the less feedback (laughs) she did a great job you just need to speak into the mic it was a good idea simone by the way okay against me now This is what I knew would happen. See, the social aspect of being a woman. Uh, (laughs) All right, so what type of leader are you inspired by and why? We wouldn't say we're really inspired by any type of leader. I think the thing that gets us most excited is someone who takes initiative and is able to think critically and see where a problem is and fix it. When I think of the teams and the people who work under us and are leaders of other teams, it's the ones who get things done and don't bother us. They inspire me the most. Yes. They take up the least of my time. Yes. Oh, right. And so, so when you think about that, is that the same type of leader that you would follow? We don't follow anyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Uh-huh. No, I, I don't know. When was the last time I followed somebody? I mean, I follow people who give me money, not because I like their leadership. <laughs> but because they're the ones paying us. Oh, okay. okay, so our leaders are the ones who pay us. Okay. Pragmatic. <laughs> Very pragmatic. Okay, so what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, my favorite. My favorite by far that changed the way I looked at advice ever after this was someone saying, keep in mind that if someone's giving you advice, it's going to get you to exactly where they are, which is so key because... For example, we're writing a book on relationships right now, and we're taking a look at the competitive landscape. And so many of the experts on relationships who are writing guides and coaching people are either in failed marriages or or single. And it just astounds us. It doesn't astound me. The people who spend the most time thinking about dating are the people who are still single, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously, they're the ones who write guides on the subject and stuff like that. But it's a little bit like the guy who says, I'm an expert at anger. Do you have any ideas how many times I've been to anger counseling? And it's like, (laughs) well, I suppose you've thought about it more than I do, but I don't know if you are the type of expert I would follow. And I think that so often within leadership, people see the same trend where, you know, you get so many of these leadership coaches and they're providing advice to people, but they became leadership coaches because they weren't able to be, you know, genuine leaders themselves. And it's like, that's where you're going to end up in life if that's what you're listening to about leadership. Yeah, I think the best people to get advice from aren't even necessarily successful people because many people are successful for like chance or because it comes naturally to them. My favorite people are successful people who really, really struggled for that success because they will be able to guide me to success from the perspective of someone who's kind of dumb, who can't necessarily. Oh, I couldn't agree with that more. So many people take advice from people, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg, who was really, you know, sort of successful as the first thing he tried, or Elon Musk, who was successful at the first thing he tried and has failed at virtually everything after that. And it's like, that's not who you look for. You look for somebody who failed at virtually everything and then was successful. Well, you know, you're Abraham Lincoln. The interesting thing, I, I learned that from my mother who used to teach gymnastics to young kids and then hire the gymnasts who grew up in her programs as additional trainers. 
And she told me one day, you know, the best trainers were the worst gymnasts. They were terrible gymnasts, but they stuck at it. And that way they're able to describe to these kids, you know, here's how you do a cartwheel. You know, I know it's hard, but you know, if you try to look at it this way or that way, and the kids who were able to cartwheel naturally, who, you know, could master the balance beam in, in seconds, just intuitively, they're terrible teachers. They just don't know how to describe it. So what I hear is that you value people who take initiative and people who are persistent. Yes. As teachers, as employees, it's people who are naturally talented and I don't have to coach. Oh, well, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> they just have the skills. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build one? I was thinking about this and I think the big thing that we've learned recently now that we're running more companies and larger teams is that the decision of who to add to your team is just as important as the decision of who to take away. And sometimes we thought that we could sort of retain everyone we wanted and make everyone good for the team if they weren't a good match in the beginning. And we found that, you know, ultimately if you have C or D players on a team where you want to have all A players, if you allow C or D players to stay, they're going to pull the whole team down. And that breaks my heart, but it's also a really important lesson that I've at least taken away in this past year. And I would also say that when the team gets big enough, when the systems get big enough, remember that the rules and the systems and the codes by which they interact are more important than any individual member, including yourself. Oh, yeah. And so when you're thinking about the team, the algorithms, you have automatically sorting emails, the pre-written snippets, those become more important than the members of your team and deserve more focus than the members of your team, even if it's a little dehumanizing because every team member is interacting through them with the other team members. So what do you mean, even if it's dehumanizing? To say your algorithms are more important than your people, yeah. some people don't like that. They don't like to hear that. But the reality is, is every person is interacting through the algorithms. While the people, you know, when you've got a hundred of them, that's one in a hundred. And eventually you get to a point where they often become replaceable, but the algorithm can always be improved and always help everyone on your team. I'm very much into, you know, you have to think through things, but I'm also very social and I love to connect and I love to find places for people. So this is interesting. Um, I, I wouldn't say, you know, that what Malcolm says disconnects with the idea of connecting with people and finding a good place for them. Often you could look at people like computers and every computer may have different software, different systems they run better than others. And, you know, finding the right system to put them in can be yeah, and when you're designing them to operate with a role, you may need to write the code in a few different ways for different mm -hmm. types of people. Um, but, you know, Simone is such an antithesis of you <laughs> in that she absolutely hates people. And because she has to force herself to interact. Wait, wait hold up, hold up, Simone. <laughs> Malcolm, hold up. I can't stand up. them. I can't stand them. I have a neighbor that says the same thing. And oh, I get you? along with her so splendidly. <laughs> Simone is excellent at interacting with people because of this. Yeah, because it doesn't come naturally to me and because I really dislike being around people, I've had to build people skills more carefully than perhaps the most social among us. Another way to put it is she's like an ultra racist who has to interact with a boss who is of one of the races they denigrate, who knows they need to be absolutely on point with everything <laughs> they say because secretly they hate interacting with them. That's the way Simone is with every human alive. <laughs> so would you say that that's the challenge that you've experienced? Because that's one of my questions. 
tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. You know, I honestly do not view my life through the lens of challenges. I think that every human uh, sort of tells herself a story about who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and we've learned uh, within our cultural context to tell that story as a series of challenges because we learn that the value that society assigns to us or characters within the stories we read is based on the challenges they've been able to overcome. I mean, so often when somebody is trying to justify their existence within the world, justify why they've been successful, justify why they matter, what they say is, look at the challenges I've overcome and look how they've shaped me, where we would say, try to divorce yourself from this idea of a challenge-based identity and focus more on the results you've gotten and focus more on the results that you're going to get in the future instead of a narrative of a chain of challenges. Because it's very easy to invent challenges and make yourself feel great in your head by how you've been able to overcome those challenges when at the end of the day, what really matters is the effect you've had on the world. I don't know, so would you have a different take on this than I do? No, I agree with you. I mean, there are plenty of things that we struggle with, but we don't want those to define us. Yeah. This is very different and interesting. The pragmatic way that you think about every single question I have. Um, and I love to learn. So help me out here. So what you're saying is that people who talk about their challenges and what they've overcome are people who... It's not necessarily wrong. I think it runs very close to the pathway of victimhood and external locus of control. Because when people start looking at the world through the lens of challenges, they may also begin to use challenges as an excuse for why they haven't been able to achieve something. Or why they're still a great person, even though they haven't achieved anything of actual value. Yeah, like they may say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a functional person and I, that's amazing because I actually have crippling OCD and it's amazing that I can leave the house every day. And somehow that makes it okay that they're just getting by, not like, you know, and able to support themselves. Whereas, you know, and, I don't and, think that's enough. And the reason why that's a problem is because anyone, no matter what their background is. You know, you look at Steve Jobs' life, for example. He would easily be able to say, the fact that I'm able to barely function in society, you know, growing up an orphan, you know, going through all that hard stuff in his childhood, oh, I'm barely able to function in society, but look at everything I've overcome, because he's defined himself by his challenges that he overcame, and by that standard, he's a success, instead of by the standard of objective output in the world. I don't think he actually ended up doing that much meaningful stuff in the world and he probably could have been a lot better. But, but, but the point I'm making is that when we talk about our challenges in the life, when we talk to people who are very successful or people who aren't very successful, both of them will point to the same challenges as to why they're at that point in their life. Yeah, like, oh, because my parents abused me and that's why I'm successful or, and that's why I, you know, can barely leave the house every day, so. So it's just that challenges make it so easy to tell a story where your life is meaningful and by leaning on that, and some people need to lean on that, you know, what can I say? But then other people are like, you know what, screw it. I'm not gonna, you know, cover myself in sort of the safety covers that society has given me. I'm gonna say what I'm gonna judge my worst by is the difference I'm able to make in the world. And I'm gonna think through what I want that difference to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm for that, especially that last part you just said, because it, it does matter what you do now. And I certainly believe that the past is the past. And I appreciate you kind of sifting through that for me. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. 
Master Leadership at Schools podcast program will help prepare your students for any future they encounter. Teachers and students learn effective leadership and podcasting skills to create a platform that's an incubator for leadership, innovation, collaboration, and creativity. See this in action at masterleadership.org forward slash MLS and find out how to bring this to your organization. That's masterleadership.org forward slash MLS. So tell us about one of your greatest successes. I would say mine is, is all thanks to Malcolm and him getting me to really from the first time ever think for myself and decide what I value because I discovered that I was a completely different person from the way that I had sort of manifested myself in life before. Like when I met Malcolm, every day to work, I would wear a totally different flamboyant outfit. I was like a walking clown. I hipster, hipster, yeah, hipster yeah. I mean, you know, like vintage round taffeta, petticoated 1950s dresses one day, and then Harajuku street fashion that's like bright pink and black stripes with ears and a hood the next day. You know, I was kind of a joke. But I, people I, responded positively to it because yeah. people like reacting to novel stimuli. And, and, all, the and books, all the books that I read said, you want to be happy, you want to be playful, you want to make the world a better, brighter, happier place. And I thought, yeah, that's what I care about. And environmentalism, global warming, you have to stop evil. And when I actually looked at what I valued and what I cared about and what I, I needed to maximize in the world and, and thought about that instead of just reading it in a book and saying, oh, I guess that sounds about right. I should try to be happy. I don't actually value being happy. I don't actually think that specifically a lot of the interventions we're taking with certain social programs are the right answer. And having not thought about that before is terrifying. So I think my big achievement was to realize, oh, here's what I believe. And here's how I think I should maximize it. And now I own my life. And everything changed after that. I should agree with Simone on this. Yeah, that breaking away from the societal model is probably my biggest achievement as well, even if I did it at a younger age. You know, the societal model of what matters is sort of distributing positive emotions across as many people as possible. And that, you know, humans being in a positive emotional state is something of intrinsic value. And that, you know, you should search for a sense of oneness or vague spirituality. And you're sort of given these two things and society reinforces looking for them, but it also reinforces not questioning them. Yeah. And I mean, I really, I was good at trying to do those things. I took these religious pilgrimage trips. I did charity work. And yet, when I finally looked back on it after having really thought through these things, it felt not only feckless, like it wasn't going to have any long-term impact on the world, but really self-aggrandizing. And, and self-maturatory. Yeah, like just, it was really just about making me feel good about myself. And it wasn't actually helping when the When we think about why we're satisfied with who we are, the thing that makes me most satisfied with who I am, uh, just from a satisfaction, of course it doesn't matter that I'm satisfied with who I am, but it's, it's nice. When I contrast myself with people who are classically successful, classically famous, you know, really big industry hotshots, is when I see what they're spending that success on and I see how self-masturbatory it is to these societal cliches of what you should spend your life on. And it makes me realize that I've achieved something they haven't, which is actually thinking about what I want from my life and what I want to achieve in the world. Because there's certain things you can see them spend on and you're just like, nobody would really put 
thought into that would be fighting for that cause. Yeah, and this could be either like really big social charity programs where if you took just a little bit of time looking into the long-term policy ramifications or key ramifications of those programs, you realize you could actually be doing a lot more harm than good. Or even things like, hey, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life on a yacht enjoying the sun. You know, we've been lucky enough to see people in these settings a couple of times and to be quite honest, they're not not very happy. Yeah, they're not particularly happier than we are. Yeah, they'll put on happy faces when they're taking selfies, and then they sort of snap back into these scowls because they have the sun in their eyes and they're sunburned and they're a little dehydrated, and frankly, they'd be a lot happier if they were were just on the internet. Yeah, so it's it's weird. Watching (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You speak a lot of truths. Um, (laughs) It sounds to me how you would define success is the impact that you have on the world, the positive impact that you have on the world. Is that correct? I would, no, 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 no. Even more than that, how we define success and how we define success in ourselves is first just deciding the impact you want to have on the world. Mm-hmm. Because so many people have a quote-unquote positive impact on the world, but it wasn't the impact they intended to have or they didn't have it because they chose it. And if, I was just going to say the main thing we want to change in society is we want people to freaking decide the impact they want to have. Not listen to other people, like actually think through it. Do they really care about the subjective emotional states of other humans? Do they really care about their own subjective emotional state? Do they really care about some sort of cliche, I'm on a boat and I'm sailing around the world and I'm traveling sort of definition of happiness? What are they really trying to extract from the world? What do they really think has value? And why do they think that has value? And just making that simple decision, I'm going to say that that base level thing is how we're going to define success in life because so few people do it. And I hate that we have to set the bar so low. It's like how teachers have always told us with, in math classes and with, with math homework. You know, it, I don't really care what answer you get. What I care is that you show your work. And we're sort of like that. You know, we want people to show why they've decided to do what they're going to do. And we also do want to see a result, but it's really, really important. It's more important to us that we see their work. Right. And that certainly is important that you think through and decide the impact that you want to make. Now, can people change their minds? Yes. But we live in a society in which people are penalized for that, where people are called flip-floppers or weak-willed if they change their mind on a subject. And we really want to, with our foundation, change society to be one in which people who change their mind when presented with a genuinely strong logical argument are lauded as superior. It's not them losing an argument, it's them becoming a better person. And and I, I really can't back that up enough. In our society, you look at a politician and a politician says, I was presented with evidence I didn't know before and based on that evidence, I changed my mind on a particular topic. We ridicule them and it's not just politicians, it's people. If a friend comes to you and they go, you know what, I had that argument with you in the past and it turns out that your position was correct and my position was wrong based on further evidence I've gotten. What we do is we go, oh, I won. I told you so. You, the one who didn't change your mind, the one who didn't take the hard step is rewarded. And the one who did is ridiculed and lower in position was in your individual social hierarchy ranking. And that is so screwed up and that needs to change. The person who makes the hard step of changing their mind is the person we should be lauding. Right, because you do change, you grow, you learn. So that is important. So I think this is a good place to speak about your foundation and perhaps our listeners are are wondering, well, where can I get more information? Can you tell us a bit about it? 
Yeah, the Pragmatist Foundation is, is designed to help people live more intentional lives, consider alternate viewpoints, and be more pragmatic in general with not just how they choose to live their lives, but in the future, raise their kids, date, approach their jobs or politics, whatever it may be. Anyone can learn more about our foundation at pragmatist.guide. It's a very young foundation at this point, and it's mostly investing in, in slowly building school programs that are designed to change that culture that we had just discussed, to make it cool to change your mind when you're presented with really solid information. But we're still in the very early stages. You know, like those yo, 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 don't smoke kids programs. We have like a yo, 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 changing your mind is harder than being right in the first place. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so as far as school programs, what can we look for? Well, we're still developing them and building connections with different school systems. So we have a couple of different pilot projects in the works. Some of them are like after school clubs where people sort of talk and talk through issues where we give people a controversial issue and we ask them to argue the opposite point or explore something or see if they can change their mind about something that really, really does matter to them. Because let's say someone says, you know, okay, my favorite superhero is Iron Man. And then we give them the assignment of, why don't you actually learn about some other superheroes? You know, find out if you're, if this is actually right, just to get them, you know, the exercise. Other things are like what Malcolm described where, you know, we could do a school assembly and give people some examples so they can start engaging. With but them. we want to do this in a data-driven approach, but at the end of the day, the reality is, is that we've taken a unique approach with our nonprofit is that all of the money that goes to it is from us or from, you know, our books or something like that right now. So we have not had the leisure that we would like to promote it the way we would like to. And so instead, we've first been focused on just getting a few books out there, selling them as cheaply as we can to sort of make sort of our philosophical stance clear while creating curriculums ourselves in the background that we can eventually enact as soon as the foundations accumulate enough money to really promote them. Yeah, we do have pretty demanding, we'll say 60 to 80 hour a week jobs. <laughs> so everything we're able to do well, is like jobs, owning a bunch of companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are very demanding companies. So we're only making so much progress, but we have big plans for the future. Wonderful. And you know what, I wanted to also talk about this and I wrote it down. So let's get back to this. Simone, you talked about how you used to wear all different types of clothes. When we first got on and I said hello to you guys, you said you wear the same outfit every day. Is That's that what right. you said? Tell me about that. Well, so this is actually in the book and it's, it's one of my favorite parts personally, uh, because after we guide people through the process of deciding for themselves what they believe without pointing them in any direction. They have to basically develop a bunch of hypotheses on how to best achieve or maximize the thing that matters most to them in the world. And that involves developing an internal self that is going to respond optimally to all of your challenges, you know, to have the bravery and persistence you need to succeed. But this Plus an external self that is optimized to maximize the kind of reaction you need to get what you want. And one of my theories about how to achieve what I cared about most in the world was to have more success as a business person, which is great because that's what we're really doing now. And when I told Malcolm this, he sort of vaguely gestured in my direction. He's like, and you think you're going to be treated seriously like that? And, I mean, at first I was like, oh, I should be very offended right now. But no, I mean, he was totally right. A complete hipster and no one would respect me. So what Malcolm and I did 
was we looked at the Forbes top list of like 500 powerful women and a bunch of other directories of successful business women online. We edited out every woman who was on that list because of inheritance or because she married someone or because she was a celebrity, because in that case, maybe sex sells and attractiveness sells more than it should. And then we just looked at those women who had, through their own basically professional merit, risen. And we looked at how they dressed, we looked at how they spoke, we looked at, at their haircuts, and we built based on that, and my personality and the way that I kind of, you know, most feel comfortable, an outfit, a uniform, as it were, uh, which included my hair, my glasses, my makeup, uh, and of course my clothing, that we thought would be most optimal for that kind of goal. And so in my case, it was all black. Uh, I used to have waist-length hair, but we found some studies that indicated that long hair is associated both amongst men and women with being approachable and attractive and fun. It's also not associated with competence. The shorter your hair, the more competent you appear. So we cut off all my hair. And we also knew that studies had the same sort of results with glasses. If you wear glasses, you may seem less friendly, maybe a little less attractive, but certainly more professional and competent. So we got me really big glasses. And it really is amazing how once I started wearing that uniform, it certainly changed my behavior because it reminded me who I am and that I need to step up. But also people treated me so differently. And I cannot believe, because I was raised under that whole you know, falsehood of, oh, people will discover who you are on the inside. That's what matters. And I always thought that that's how things work. And Malcolm, he spent years trying to convince me otherwise, and he was ultimately right. It's amazing. Once I actually started dressing the way I wanted people to treat me, they treated me But just, just to better. put it more simply, on her specific question of wearing a single outfit, if you look at the most successful women in the world today, they almost always wear about the same outfit, or an outfit along a particular theme. And I went tour, yeah. Yeah, that sure. sort of stuff. You know, you get these, or even a Hillary Clinton, a very similar Yeah, she's famous outfit. for her jumpsuits. Anna Wintour is famous for her hair and her glasses. And that's because, as a public, we don't have time to understand a nuanced individual who's a different person every day, who dresses differently every day. We understand all of the other people in our lives as side characters. In everyone's life, they are a protagonist. And that means that in everyone else's life, everyone who you've ever interacted with, you were a side character. You were not a protagonist. So if you want to actually have a meaningful place in their lives, you better be a really good side character. Optimize yourself as a side character. Don't optimize yourself as a protagonist. Yeah. Now, do you wear that outfit all the time or just for business situations? All the time. I don't have any clothing with color except for that which my mother-in-law has purchased for me for photo shoots. We try not to own anything we can't fit in a single suitcase. Exactly. So really? uh, yeah, I have this really great foldy thing that I fit in my suitcase. It's just all black, a wall of black. I love it. It makes life a lot easier. Oh yeah. Well, and, and that's why, so you know how uh, President Obama had this whole thing where he said, I'm only going to wear blue suits. And his reasoning, and this is very sound reasoning, was that it would protect him from decision fatigue. We only have so much mental processing power and self-control each day. And if we waste it trying to figure out what to wear, mm -hmm. what to eat. Uh, there's actually a lot of science on this. I would look up decision fatigue research if your research, if your listeners aren't familiar with it. It is actually really critical. And if you are wasting decision fatigue on your outfit during the day, it will ruin you for the rest of the day. Yeah. So I'm going to veer from my typical questions because I'm so curious. So how long have you guys been married? We've been married for six, oh gosh, okay, maybe we've been married for like two or three years. We've been together for six years. 
Okay, I don't know. So Simone manages the time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so do you do you fight? And if so, who wins typically? Virtually never. Like when we got married, right? We read all this stuff about how or growing up, I believed that like marriage had conflict or like it was difficult or that it was work. Well, because and people say that they're like, hey, relationships are work. And it's absolutely not. And it really, really shocked me when I came to understand this. After being in a relationship with her, I was like, it's been a few years. We fought maybe twice. Oh, once. but I feel like people think that we fight because Malcolm's voice carries really well. And both of us are like really passionate about what we do. So even like if people heard our conversation with you, um, from like another room, they might think that we're arguing with yeah, each other. Yeah, but the, yeah, Roland, the point is, is that in a normal relationship, we've come to recognize and we've gotten to know other people in our generation who are like us, we've realized that fights are just not really something that happens in intentional relationships. And when I say intentional relationships, I'm contrasting that with love relationships. And love relationships are what cause fights, and love relationships are what were the most common in the generation before us, and it's what caused so many terrible fights and terrible relationships and an industry that was designed, the relationship industry, designed around keeping imperfect couples together. And so what would happen is two people would be together for a while and they'd end up falling in love and they'd be like, oh, we're in love. That must mean that we're well paired, which by the way, it doesn't. And then they'd end up using that to force two poorly paired people into a lifelong relationship with each other, which would cause friction. And you'd hear things in these fights, like I want kids and I don't want kids. And it's like, how is this not something that you talked about before you decided to spend your entire life together? That yeah, so to contrast that with intentional relationships, as an example, what Malcolm and I did when we first got serious about getting married was build a relationship contract that covered all of the potential points of conflict we may experience as a couple. So we interviewed lots of couples to see what problems they'd had in their relationships, and we wrote a list of every problem we could find. And then we came to an agreement on each of those points, and also just came into the relationship with a really shared understanding of what the relationship was about. And a predefined agreement of how we would resolve any conflict within the relationship so that conflicts couldn't arise. The biggest problem within the standard relationship model is, I would say, the terror of compromise. There is nothing worse for a relationship than a relationship based on compromise. Because if you have a relationship based on compromise and one person wants five and the other person wants 10, the person who wants 10 is subtly psychologically motivated to pretend they want 20. And the person who wants five is subtly psychologically motivated to pretend they want zero. Because then the average between their positions and the other person's true position is closer to their true position. And what that means is that at the end of the day, after representing these false positions and arguments that don't get resolved within short periods of time, they actually radicalize themselves over time. And this isn't a problem we used to have within relationships due to the hierarchical model within really, really older relationships. But that old hierarchical model was based entirely around a sexist notion that men were deserved to have hierarchical position over women. And the reality is, is that we need to come up with a new model, but a new model that doesn't rely on compromise, but isn't the old, more simple hierarchical model. And this is something we talk a lot about in our new book that isn't out yet. Oh, you have another book coming out. Yeah, so right now we're working on The Pragmatist's Guide to Relationships, which is a ruthless guide to dating and sexuality and humans. 
a ruthless guide. I'm sitting back, my feet are up, and I'm just yeah. taking it in. So when you guys decided to build a relationship or to get married, it was based on interviews and questions you had for each other and a contract or an understanding? Yes. We and, and not- so where, where does love fit in or does it? You guys are so well matched. And I know that was intentional. But tell me about the emotional part of it. We cannot recommend this VN enough for your listeners, even if it's not what they're typically tuning in okay, for. Okay. It is fun and it is different information and people, I think, engage with that. Okay. And if you talk about the concept of love between us, we are absolutely in love, but love for us was always something we were worried about early in our relationship because we were afraid it would compromise our decision-making and that it would lead us to wanting to spend our lives together, even if that wasn't the optimal path for each of us because love does that to people and the critical thing to understand about love is there has been a lot of research done on love and love is creatable in laboratory conditions it is not special it is not unique there was an experiment done to see if they could create love in people and people in the experiment ended up marrying the strangers the experiment paired them with if you look at arranged marriages versus non-arranged marriages the rates of people falling in love are basically actually a little higher in arranged marriages than in non-arranged marriages. Yeah, and the really frustrating thing is, despite our knowing better, uh, I think sometimes we've still been overly influenced by love. So when I started dating Malcolm, I was in my campaign to both fall in love and have my heart broken and then live alone forever. And the problem with that is I fell in love with Malcolm and I knew I was falling in love with him and I could feel that I was losing my mind and I wrote myself letters that were supposed to be sent to me after we broke up because before I agreed to have sex with Malcolm I said well I'll only have sex with you if you promise to break up with me at x date and of course he said yes and then I had these letters that were supposed to be delivered to me after that date and the letters would say Simone I know you're in love with him drop it do not do not go don't go back to him and, and they kept coming for months after Malcolm and I broke up. We did break it. He did leave me um, and then, you know, went off to Stanford, but then he didn't come back. So for months after we got back together, after our breakup period, I kept getting these letters saying, how dare you even think about it? You stay away from him. And I couldn't help it. Like I was really out of control and I'm glad it worked out, you know, for the best and that we really are really well matched, but I could have made a really terrible decision. And Malcolm was, I think, a lot more controlled about it, but he also said, that he was really glad that we were breaking up. And he said to me at one point that if he does come back to me, it's because he's going to marry me. And that's, I guess, kind of the first time we ever even discussed getting married because he needed a cooling off period. When he decided whether or not he wanted to marry me, it had to be during a period when he wasn't super infatuated. But hold on. I also just want to talk about this concept of love really quickly in our society. In our society, I think probably mostly due to Disney movies, we glamorize love as being this emotion that doesn't steer people wrong. But in the real world, love leads to wars. I mean, the first war we have a recorded history of of, of Troy, that was a a war over love. Love leads to war, it leads to murder, it leads to rape, it leads to stealing, it leads to infidelity. Love is- Well, it depends on how you define love, Malcolm. (laughs) (laughs) You know? certainly what you're stating has happened, but I wouldn't say it's love. It could be lust. It could be infatuation. 
Well, I would say there's obviously a no true Scotsman's argument with this love. You know, any love that leads to bad action isn't really love. And right. you define it as something else. Right. But I, I'm just saying, I don't necessarily, I do think that in some cases, these bad acts are caused by other things. Could you not imagine true love as you define love, loving somebody more than anything else in the world, you know, real genuine love for them, not motivating you to do something that was despicable to protect that person? I've never been asked that question. It depends. Like, it depends on situations. True love to me can certainly be selfless, can certainly be giving, can certainly be serving other people and loving oh, other people. I and I see that and I get really concerned, right? Because that is how people stay in abusive relationships for decades. This no, no, no. And I'm not talking about that either. See, well, it's, but, but it, it, it's, it's, it, though. I mean, it can, I mean, but it doesn't mean that that's love because then you have this notion of self-love and having to really think that through, wait a minute, are you doing this because you love this person or you lack love for yourself? Well, there's a whole rabbit hole we can get into. <laughs> oh, for sure. But, oh but my you, gosh. You're talking about the chemical profile that takes over a human brain when it starts pair bonding sexually with another human. That's what we're talking about with this kind of love. And in love is such a weird concept that can be defined differently across languages and whatnot. So yeah, you're right, we could go on forever, but we find it to be a very, it's like a drug, it's like a powerful drug and we don't think people should make important decisions. Well, from our concept of it, but her concept is different, Simone, and you need to respect that. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> All right, so getting back on track, if there were something you can change in education, what would that be? People would learn how to, at an early age, deal with and accept the emotional state of offense, being offended, feeling offended. Feeling offended means that something in your environment, some stimuli you're interacting with, which is often an idea or somebody who's living a different lifestyle than you or something like that, challenges your worldview in some way. And this is critical because we only feel offense when we feel that another idea or worldview is genuinely challenging to us. If it is trivial and it is crazy, we genuinely don't get offended by it. We only get offended by it when we think that we may be wrong. And yet schools and education systems, especially across the Western world, teach people that feeling offended is an appropriate time to shut down and not engage with a topic when really being offended more than any other emotional state is your brain telling you, you absolutely must engage with this topic. We're still, I feel like our current education system globally in many senses is one in which now offensive content is something that is allowed to be shut down, to be silenced. That's even more scary. It's basically saying we won't even provide information to you if it may challenge your worldview or it may challenge like a generic worldview. Mm -hmm. So the next time they find themselves getting offended by something, all we ask is that your listeners stop and really engage with that subject. And maybe look up in as unbiased a fashion as possible, genuine non-biased information about that subject just to learn more about it. Maybe they'll find out they were right and then they won't find that concept offensive anymore because it's just ridiculous. Or better yet, they might find out they're wrong and have a better, more strong, well-rounded worldview, which will help them achieve greater success in life. Well said. Thank you. But I do want to focus on a topic that's very close to my heart. And I know that you do some work in this area. One of the biggest things that come up, especially now, is bullying and a high rate of suicide. What's your take on that? 
Oh, bullying is something we talk forever about. So one thing that I focus a lot on in sort of my research into sort of human cognitions and the way humans interact and what motivates their interactions is social hierarchies. And we talked about this a little bit before. And people often don't understand the role of bullying within a social hierarchy and cause people to make really bad decisions. So um, if you look at apes, right? Apes have dominance hierarchies and we're descended from apes and we have very similar dominance hierarchies. So how a dominance play works in an ape is lower in the dominance hierarchy ape will go to a higher dominance of the hierarchy ape. And in order to win that position, they will challenge that ape in some way. They will do something like eat before the ape that's higher in them in the dominance hierarchy was supposed to eat. And then what happens is, is if the ape that isn't higher in the dominance hierarchy doesn't challenge the ape lower in the dominance hierarchy, it loses its position to that ape. In humans, in bullying, what we often see is a misunderstanding of how these dominance hierarchies are supposed to work in children. What we have is kids who are lower within their set's dominance hierarchy, not realizing, because we tell them to stand up for themselves, we tell them to have dignity, not realizing that they're challenging a dominance play by somebody higher in the dominance hierarchy who would otherwise ignore them. You know, they would just challenge them to prove that they're still higher in the dominance hierarchy. But then the lower in social status person will challenge them in some way. Like the higher in social status person will say, get behind me in line. I want your place in the water line. I mean, yeah, that's bullying. And yeah, you shouldn't do that within like your cliche ideas of equality. But also kids are not adults. They don't have fully myelinated brains. They don't have full impulse control and they're acting out these simple social hierarchies. And then when the kid who's getting bullied says, no, I won't leave this place in line. What that kid has done is they have forced the sort of animal part of the bully's mind to fight this kid. They forced them to challenge this kid because they have issued a dominance fight. And the way that we teach kids to interact doesn't sort of engage with the lower parts of their mind and doesn't engage you to say, oh, well, the bully should know. We taught bullies not to bully. That's not preventing bullying, okay? These bullies have low impulse control. What we need to do is teach the people who don't want this negative behavior set to happen to them what's actually cognitively triggering this negative behavioral set in bullying. But of course you can't say any of this because this puts the blame for the bullying on the bullied. Giving people simple advice, you know, telling somebody to look both ways before they cross the street doesn't blame everybody who didn't do that and got hit by a car, you know? Um, but to some extent, we have to look at the person who has more emotional control and we need to say, and the person who has more reason not to exercise this behavior and say, okay, this is how you prevent this particular interaction. So what are your thoughts on this? I agree. <laughs> Yeah, this is certainly a hot topic and looking at it in a pragmatic way could... Or it's completely sociopathic, who knows? Well, well, you know, my mind is exhausted, but I'm really enjoying this conversation because it's certainly in some aspects a different way of looking at something. So what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well? The Pragmatist Guide to Life only. That <laughs> is scientific research. Nothing else matters. Nothing else. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my second reading is I will go through the latest, um, usually social sciences related or psychology related studies 
I will pick the ones that are well designed and have some interesting insights and then email them to Malcolm. And that's where we get our ideas. You'll summarize them and email them to me, which I really appreciate because I wouldn't read them otherwise. Well, it's a pleasure. <laughs> so you guys have a lot of responsibilities, right? You run how many companies? Um, One, two, three, four, five. 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 Okay. Well, or you, are you including the investment company? Six. And then the other investment company? Seven. 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 So what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? We go on strategy walks in the morning. Um, so as we are in Lima, Peru now, we walked down. 6 a.m. every morning, we walk for about an hour to an hour and a half. And as we walk and enjoy all of the nice health benefits of walking, we talk through whatever strategic issues we'll have to address in that week or coming month or in that day. Or when we're feeling mentally weak and need rejuvenation, we talk about sort of high concept stuff about how humans interact and what we can learn from that because that's where we gain pleasure. Yes. So you do this every morning? Yes. yes. What time do you get up? Six. Two. Okay. So Malcolm, you get up at two in the morning. Yes. And then he'll take after we go for our walk, his sort of second sleep and then hit the day. Do you ever do this alone? We walk alone a lot. Um, Often. When I, so Simone walks every day. I don't necessarily, especially when I'm in environments where I can't walk easily throughout a city, like when we're living at our place in Miami. Uh, Simone then works from her elliptical for that period of time instead. And how important is exercise? I am a terrible person and basically non-functional on a day when I can't exercise. Well, let's talk about the research because this isn't a subjective question. This is an objective question. The research says that exercise is actually fairly important. It's an important to cognitive function. It's important to mental clarity. And I absolutely hate this because I don't like exercising. But so many things that you can do in life, you know, like, I don't know, exercising, eating less food, doesn't feel good in the moment, but overall it makes achieving positive emotional states much easier. And there is a reason I ask this because many leaders, especially in education, we have very little time to exercise. And so we don't, we decide not to. And it's a detriment. Ah, but here's a nice thing. A recent study showed that movement throughout the day versus let's say, you know, an hour of concentrated uh, cardio movement in like a, an exercise class a day, no difference. As long as you are doing little things throughout the day, getting up to get a bottle of water, drinking so much that you're constantly walking to the bathroom to pee, taking the stairs. Well, here's an easy thing you can do. Whenever you're going anywhere that is a significant distance, jog. When you're walking to your car from the school, jog. When you're walking to the playground, jog. Wherever you're going within a, a movement area, just make a point of jogging and you will get so much more exercise than you would otherwise get. <laughs> Beautifully said. And save time. We love that. <laughs> now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't addressed? We want money. So here's what your listeners need to do. If they're yeah, educators and they book uh, trips abroad or anything like that, one of our companies, travelmax.com, we specifically organize a lot of school trips, leadership conferences, everything like that. So if they're doing anything like that, we can handle all the logistics for them and do it at lower price than if they were booking it all online. So travelmax.com, check us out or email us at malcolm at travelmax.com. Well, our better yet, CEO at travelmax.com goes oh. to both of us. And we, we really actually do help people in nonprofits and, and and schools, and yeah. schools save money on the travel they book by comparison shopping and negotiating for them. So yeah, and we would love for people to do that. Absolutely. Wonderful. Love that information, by the way, Malcolm. I'm glad you plugged yeah. it in. So Simone and Malcolm, thank you so much for adding value to me 
and to our listeners. It's been so much fun. Lily, we've had a blast. Thank you so much for this honor of having us on your podcast. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.